Well, good morning, everybody. Good to be with y'all this morning. Welcome to UA. If you've never been here before, my name is Mitch. I'm uh, one of the ministers here at this church. Last week, we had a big Easter service complete with an egg hunt and an incredible meal together. And we finished a sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. And this week, we're kicking off a new series to continue the joys of Easter, just like Jay was talking about a moment ago. This is going to be a five-week series building up to Pentecost called Because He Lives. Uh, Normally, when I have preached about the resurrection, I have stuck to the past or the future. When I'm talking about the past, I preach that Jesus of Nazareth was a carpenter and rabbi, the the Messiah from 2,000 years ago, who died on a Friday and rose again on that Sunday. And I'll preach that it's a historical event. If you had an iPhone in the grave at that time, it would be a very old version of the iPhone. But if you had an iPhone and you were filming, you would see a dead man in one second and a living man in the next second. It's not a metaphor. It's not a symbol. The resurrection is as historical as the writing of the Declaration of Independence. It happened in time with the dates. Now, other times when I preach about the resurrection, I talk about the future. I promise that we, all of us in this room, all human beings who've died, will be raised from the dead because Jesus himself promises this. In John chapter 5, verses 29, he says, all will be raised from the dead, all will be called out of the graves, some will rise to experience eternal life, and others will rise to experience judgment. So even Jesus himself promised the resurrection of all of the dead, and because I believe Jesus always keeps his promises, he's going to do that at some point in the future. Do I have a PowerPoint slide on what those risen men and women will look like in the future? No, I don't know what that'll feel like or be like, but do I believe that Jesus will raise us from the dead? Yes. However, when I talk about the resurrection, I don't always talk about the present. I'm always stuck in the past or in the future. But the Apostle Paul wasn't like me. He believed that the resurrection of Jesus had power, and that power could be known in the present tense. We sang a song with these lyrics, but they come directly from the Apostle Paul. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his rising." I want to know about the power of his resurrection today. That's what the Apostle Paul believed. And Paul had this unshakable belief because he actually encountered the risen Jesus. You may not know this if you didn't grow up in church or aren't familiar with the Bible. That's okay. But Paul never met Jesus in his earthly ministry. In the 33 years of Jesus walking around the earth, Paul never met him. He had heard about Jesus, but he believed he was a false messiah. Because Paul thought, well, what kind of so-called messiah would be crucified? How could he be the promised, long-awaited king of Israel if he was killed by the Romans and ashamed on a cross? Paul knew that according to the Bible, anyone who hung from a tree was cursed, and the Messiah can't be cursed, so whoever this Jesus of Nazareth is is certainly not the Messiah. You can actually see Paul's logic. 
In the beginning, Paul thought that Christ's followers weren't just wrong, they were dangerous. God had punished rebellious Jews in the past, so if there's this new group of Christians walking around saying that Jesus is the Messiah, well, they need to be stopped. Before Paul met Jesus, he thought the righteous thing to do was to get rid of all the Christians. So Paul went to a city called Damascus to find any Jews tempted by this false Messiah, and on the road there, that's the first time he met the risen Jesus. I hope you can see this painting of Paul's experience. I love it because Paul is on the ground, face up, having this vision of Jesus, and it's not the earthly Jesus that walked around for 33 years. It is the risen Jesus. And that risen Jesus speaks to Paul and says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus is implying that when Paul is on his way to Damascus to hunt down these Christians, he's not just persecuting a couple of Jews, he's persecuting the living Lord Jesus. So all of Paul's logic starts being upended. If Jesus is alive because he's encountering him, then Paul realizes he must have been raised from the dead. And if God raised him from the dead, then that means Jesus is the Messiah. You see, Paul had this old logic, this old way of understanding Jesus. Well, if he's crucified, I've got to conclude that he's cursed. And if he's cursed, he can't be the Messiah. But now that he's encountered the risen Jesus, everything changes for Paul. He must be the true Messiah. And if he was crucified, it wasn't because he was cursed for himself. He was cursed for us. He must not have died for his sins. He must have died for our sins. You see, Paul's encounter with the risen Jesus changes everything for him. And now he knows the power of Christ's resurrection. That's why we're starting this new series Because we know Jesus was raised in the past, and we know Jesus will raise us in the future, but we want to know the power of his resurrection right now. So at the end of each of these sermons, I want us to say out loud, because he lives, and know what's possible, know what's true, because Jesus is alive today. So, if you have a Bible, I want you to turn back to Philippians chapter 3. If you have a Bible app on your phone, you're welcome to get out that too, that works. If you don't have either of those, we have black Bibles in the pew racks in front of you, and we'll be on page 952. That's where Philippians chapter 3 is. Just as a little background while you're flipping and turning there, after Jesus, excuse me, after Paul accepted Jesus as the Messiah, he went all around the Mediterranean world. He believed, I have to share this news with as many people as possible. He told everyone that Jesus is king, that he's defeated all of our spiritual enemies. And one of the cities that accepts Paul's message was called Philippi. This was an ancient city in modern-day Greece. Now, after Paul started that church in Philippi, he left. He wanted to continue to spread the word and good news elsewhere. And we're not sure exactly why, but Paul landed in jail in another city, maybe in Ephesus, maybe in Rome. We don't know. But from jail in another city, Paul writes this letter to to Christians in Philippi, and that's the letter we heard this morning. The main reason why Paul writes this letter is to encourage these Christians, but he's also going to remind them of what he has already taught. 
He's already been there. He's already preached to them, and now he's going to remind them. And we see that in the first couple of verses. They're on the screen. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write, what? The same things to you again. Because it's a safeguard for you. It's a protection for you. I'm reminding you for your safety. Because they need to watch out. They need to watch out for a group that Paul refers to as those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Now, if you've read any of Paul's letters, you know he can get pretty feisty. So I want to talk about who these people are, okay? His word choice actually shows us what they believed. Paul had this recurring issue in the churches he started because he preached to both Jews and Gentiles. And some of each accepted his message and started going to church together. The problem was that some of the Jews were really excited that the Gentiles believed in Jesus as the Messiah, but they believed these Gentiles need to become Jews. Jews are God's chosen people, so they need to become Jews in order to become Christians, which meant that the male Gentiles needed to be circumcised like Jewish men. Here's the problem with that. The whole point of the gospel, according to Paul, was that Gentiles could join the church as Gentiles without ever becoming Jews. This is why he calls his opponents mutilators of the flesh. These enemies want the Gentile men to cut, to mutilate their own flesh in order to join the church. And Paul says emphatically, no. He says, it's not they who are the circumcision. He says, we are the circumcision. We serve God by His Spirit. We boast in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. You see, he's saying they're putting all their eggs in one basket. They are putting all of their confidence, all of their hope, all of their assurance, their boast in circumcision. But that's not what we base our hope on. He says we boast, we're confident, we have hope because of Jesus Christ. Now, what's really funny about this is in the middle of saying these guys are the enemies, they're teaching something that is opposed to the gospel, he says, by the way, let me just add really quick, of all people, I have reasons for such confidence. And then he gives this hilarious resume right in the middle of the letter. He says, if anybody thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he starts listing them. I was circumcised on the eighth day, just like the Torah says, I'm of the people of Israel, I am of the tribe of Benjamin, and then my favorite phrase, he says, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. You've heard of the Holy of Holies, you've heard of the Song of Songs, I'm the Hebrew of Hebrews. My resume is spotless. He says, in regard to the Torah, in regard to the law, I'm a Pharisee, I'm not one of the Sadducees, I'm one, I'm one of the Pharisees. As for zeal, I'm so passionate about God that I persecuted the church. And as for righteousness based on the law, I'm faultless. In other words, Paul is saying, my resume before Jesus is in perfect condition. However, what he says next is so crucial. He says, it's nothing compared to what I have now. Whatever were gains, past tense, I now consider loss. What were additions are now subtractions for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss. Everything is a subtraction by the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. Then Paul goes one step further. 
I'm not just going to call it a subtraction. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Okay, let's pause right here. We know for a fact that God uses Paul's past for good. So I don't think Paul is saying everything before I met Jesus was evil and wicked in God's sight. He is emphasizing how different his life is after he encounters the risen Jesus. He says, by comparison, my pre-Jesus life was wasted time. It was a loss. It was even trash by comparison to my life with Jesus right now. What, what is a light bulb in comparison to the sun? It's nothing. Pre-Damascus Paul can go in the recycling bin, but post-Damascus Paul is gold. And Christ is what makes the difference, which is why I love what Paul says here. Even though he knows Jesus, he wants to know him more. I want to know Christ. And yes, to know the power of his resurrection. Let's say those underlined and bolded words together. To know the power of his resurrection. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection right now. And Paul is clear. I haven't already obtained all this. I haven't arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. We need to pause right here. Because Christ lives, Paul can press on. Isn't that amazing? Through all the challenges he faces, because Christ lives, because he knows the power of his resurrection, Paul can press on. And he says, this is what pressing on looks like. I can forget what is behind and strain toward, is, toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And Paul says, this is not for brand new, immature baby Christians. He says, all who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, God will make that clear to you too. Only let us all live up to what we have already attained. Okay, there's so much meat in this section, I don't want us to lose it, so here's the summary, right? Paul knows Christ because he encountered him on the road to Damascus. And knowing Christ, in Paul's opinion, is surpassingly great. It's greater than everything else before he knew Jesus. But as he grows in knowing Christ, he just wants to know him more and more because he wants to know the power of his resurrection. This is so amazing. The resurrection just isn't an, a true idea that's in your head. You know the living Christ today. And the living Christ empowers you with resurrection power. And that enables you to press on. I want to clarify what I'm going to call for this morning Christian forgetting and Christian straining. Paul talks about forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, and I think both of those phrases can be misunderstood. So I want to talk about what they don't mean. Paul is not saying when he says forget what is behind, he's not saying whitewash history. He just confessed in this chapter to persecuting the church zealously. Paul is not saying, forget all of your ancestors. He knows that he is from the people of Israel and from the tribe of Benjamin. He's not saying, ignore the past. 
Paul is saying that the past is not our Lord and Master. Think about what Isaiah says, or what God says through Isaiah. Don't dwell in the past. I mean, think about Paul's own resume. I mean, he had a great resume before his life in Christ. He could have settled for that and never known the surpassing greatness of Jesus. But Paul chose to forget what is behind him. He's not going to live off the energy and fumes of that resume anymore. He's going to forget what is behind and strain towards what is ahead. And just in case there's any misunderstanding about the meaning of straining here, we're not talking about earning our salvation by good deeds, okay? Paul himself says, I don't have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. I have a righteousness that comes from faith in Christ, from God. I think there are other times in the New Testament that talk about this idea of straining that really help us this morning. Jesus uses this same idea when he tells his disciples, strive to enter the narrow door. The author of Hebrews uses this same idea when he says, leave behind the basics and grow up. Paul repeats this idea in other letters when he tells Christians to run the race so as to win it. Christian straining is not earning your salvation. It's effort. It's pressing on. Which means that now at this church, we do not have time for spiritual lethargy. I don't know about you, but there are days as a Christian where I am exhausted. I end my day feeling spent in my soul. And there's this kind of sluggishness that says, all right, Mitch, just take it easy. You, you may even think about quitting. I'm sure some of you have felt this way now or at some point in your life as a Christian. You felt, I'm exhausted. I can't take it anymore. I don't have the strength to pull this off. But this is such good news. When you know the power of Christ's resurrection, you can press on. You can strain toward what is ahead. You can strive to enter the narrow door. You can forget what is behind and leave behind the basics and grow up and run so as to win the race. My worry for all of us is that we'll get stuck. We'll get bogged down. I worry that we will conclude, you know, this work isn't worth the effort. I hope this problem will blow over soon enough. Maybe somebody else will fix it. But what we need right now is not spiritual lethargy. It is spiritual endurance. One of my favorite books I've read this last year is Hannah Coulter by Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry wrote a series of books set in a town of his own imaginative creation. The town is called Port William. It's, it's a fictional little city in Kentucky that he made up. And in these books, Berry tells the story of a farming couple named Hannah and Nathan Coulter. Nathan is a farmer of few words. Now, a couple times in their married life, Nathan says a very powerful phrase that has stuck with me. He speaks this phrase after he is diagnosed with cancer. When Nathan and Hannah come home after the visit to the doctor's office and the bad news, Hannah sits down and she asks him, well, Nathan, what are you going to do? You're just going to die or what? And Nathan says, dear Hannah, I'm going to live right on. I'm going to live right on. 
When you read about this man of very few words, you know that he has the virtue of endurance. I'm going to live right on. I'm going to forget what is behind and I'm going to strain toward what's ahead. I'm going to press on. I'm going to endure. We need this virtue as a church and as individuals because my bet is that a lot of us are feeling tired. You know what God wants you to do, but you just don't have the willpower. You know what God is calling you to do, but you know it's a marathon and not a sprint. And you just want to delay because you're feeling spent and by yourself. You don't have the strength. But the good news this morning is very simple. Because he lives, we can press on. I want you to say these seven words with me, okay? Because he lives, we can press on. Because he lives, we can press on. Not because of our own strength or our own willpower or because we're so smart, but because he lives. He's alive right now, and we can know the power of his resurrection right now. I love Christians who make beautiful art. I have this picture of the resurrection on my wall in my office. And I want to tell you about the other characters in this depiction. I love Jesus is rising from the dead with the brownish, reddish gates of hell underneath his feet. Underneath those gates is an old gray man symbolizing death. And death has been shackled by Jesus on his hands and his feet, and he's cowering beneath Jesus. And I love this. Adam and Eve are being brought out of their tombs by the strong hands of Jesus. Now, to the left of Jesus, we have John the Baptist and his wild and crazy hair. We've got King David and King Solomon. On the right side of Jesus, we have Abel, the first man ever killed by his brother. We have Moses and Elijah, the giver of the law and symbol of the prophets. Now, it's not true that John the Baptist and David and Solomon and Abel and Elijah and Moses and Adam and Eve are all present for the resurrection of Jesus. But this depiction is so true because Christ's resurrection power stretches all across human history and reaches to us today 2,000 years later. I love that. It collapses all of history into this one moment where Jesus is saving all of humanity by the power of his resurrection. And that is good news for us because you and I do not have the strength to press on in our own hearts and minds. We don't have the horsepower to persevere in times of weakness and fragility. We don't have the will it takes to endure. But because Christ lives we can press on. We can be unshackled from what is behind in the past because the past is not our Lord and Savior. And we can be freed to strain to what is ahead. Let's say these words again together. Because He lives, we can press on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, many of us are feeling weary today. We're overwhelmed by all the challenges we face in life. 
We're overwhelmed by the challenges that this church is facing. We are weary because so many days we reach the end and we know we don't have any more left. Father, this is why we want to know the power of Christ's resurrection. We cannot press on without Jesus. We cannot endure without Jesus. We cannot strain towards what is ahead without Jesus. Father, we want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection today. We pray this in his name. Amen.